cue motivational music. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name's Dean and I'm a designer on a quest. A quest to further understand the creative industry and learn as much as this noggin will hold. Join me as I share my discoveries and tap into the minds of some of the most well-respected creatives in the world. This is my creative therapy. Hello and welcome to episode 12. In this episode, I chat to former VP of Global Design at Coca-Cola, James Somerville. Is a sentence I never thought I'd say. We chat about his journey within the industry, from co-founding creative agency Attic at the age of 19 from his grandma's house, to being the face of design and creativity at one of the world's most recognized brands and loads more. I'm not going to lie, I felt massively out of my depth here. And it kind of made me, or kind of reminded me, why I started this podcast and I mentioned it a little bit in episode one and it's kind of the reason why I named the podcast creative therapy uh one of my goals is to eventually speak more clearer and fluently when I'm talking to other creatives I often find what happens is and this might sound a little weird but when I get talking about something I'm really excited about my enthusiasm for the subject takes over and I start thinking like 10 steps ahead of what I'm trying to say so I'm learning how to control my end of the conversation. But yeah, let's get into it. How's it been? How's uh, how's Monday? Oh, Mondays are always good. I like it. You know, there's always a, you know, after a weekend, get back into everything. And um, yeah. yeah, what about you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. I, um, I It was a pretty tame weekend, to be honest. Okay. Didn't really do much. Just a lot of, a lot of relaxing and... Well, a, a little bit of work, a little bit of private work, but not too bad. You, did you get out and about the weekend, or was it? Um, well, we have with we have a couple of kids here, and we just you know, there's a lot of soccer and other sport activities. Soccer, I, I use that only because of like ease. Football, uh, I forgot I was talking to a Brit. Yeah, so um, <laughs> there's a lot of driving yeah. around, and you know, they they such a big city fields are not just the next school or the next club you got to like almost drive for an hour or an hour and a half just to get to a field so that oh was good wow yeah but it's kind of part of the weekend routine it's all good that's that's awesome so do you get to come back home quite often or i, I mean I, I probably get back maybe three times in the year maybe if i'm looking for but usually i average around about three trips awesome yeah that's cool so yeah, if you don't mind, James, I mean, I'm recording now. Okay. If that's if that's cool. Yeah. Um, but I, I honestly, this is this is an honor to to have to have you on and to be speaking with you. Honestly. Um, thank you. <laughs> so so thank you so much. I, I've got a bundle of questions to ask. If you, if you wouldn't mind, I'd, I'd love to just get straight in. I'm a little bit cautious of your time and how much you've got of it to spare. Yeah, I'm 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 obviously in a in a more comfortable uh, clock position than you, so I'll go at your pace. You've got as much time as you need from me. Oh, that's awesome. That sounds good. So yeah, I mean, you're from Huddersfield, is that right? Yes, born and uh, to a degree raised uh, most of my, certainly my childhood and and, uh, into the early part of my young adulthood in Huddersfield, yes. I'm um, I'm from up north originally. I'm I'm down in the southwest at the minute, but I was born in Middlesbrough. Oh, nice. Okay. I know Middlesbrough, not only from the football team, but I used to uh, when we were at art school, I used to pavement draw uh, in Middlesbrough and the neighbouring Sunderland quite a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, Sunderland. Well, I mean, I I moved down from Middlesbrough when I was around about six. Okay. So I've got vague memories, but, I mean, you probably can't hear it in my accent now, but it, it's weird. When I speak to my parents, the accent is full-blown northern. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. Yeah, it really soon strange. comes back. Yeah, it's in there somewhere. Have you Have you found that you've picked up an accent since you've been over there? Well, you can tell me that after after you know we finish speaking, but I you know I don't think so. Uh, I do find myself using some of the U.S. words as I just talked about soccer. Soccer, um, yeah. Only because you know, for, for it you, in the first two years you don't, and then you just think, you know what, I'm fed up of explaining what I really mean. And soccer is an easy one, but there are several words in obviously both the American uh, language and the uh, British English language that that are very different. So I, I find myself kind of just defaulting to their word. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully not in the accent, but certainly in the word. 
So you've, you've got like the obvious ones that stand out to me are Garage and um, Tomato and uh, uh, Yogurt. Fresh, yeah. fresh. I mean, those are definitely dialect spins. That I, It's when you have a different word for the same thing. Like we, you know, when you clear your house out and you, you might hire a skip. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, over here, it's called a dumpster. Now, it took me <laughs> two years to, to start to say the word dumpster. But uh, eventually, if you keep saying to someone, oh, yeah, I think I might get a skip this weekend, they have really no idea what you're trying to order. Um, <laughs> so you, you, just, you, just, you just pick up their language slight, but you say it in almost kind of like a, a Yorkshire accent, you know. So do they have trouble trying to understand you sometimes or are they? I think my wife, who's actually a New Yorker, she, I mean, when I go home, I, I see, I feel a very broad Yorkshire accent and I think I'm kind of somewhere in between. Um, okay. And so therefore, I, a lot of Americans, especially in the South, think I'm either Australian, um, potentially South African, because their their kind of audio view of of Great Britain or certainly the England would be from movies, and much of that is almost kind of like a London accent, traditionally. Oh, yeah. So they they go they look for that kind of Cockney, and if you're not that, they must think you're an Aussie. Um, so <laughs> that's so, so funny. That's kind of funny. <laughs> it's, it reminds me when you like go abroad and um, you speak to someone abroad and you say you're from England, they say, "Oh, London." Yeah. Like, no, no, not London. And they say, "Oh, Manchester." Yeah. Like, no, no, not Manchester. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So let, let's get into it. I mean, yeah, like I said, I've got a bunch of stuff I want to ask you. And I'm, I'm super excited. So you right. began your journey within within the industry when you uh, were 19, uh, when you co-founded Attic with a college mate. Uh, from the attic of your nan's house. So the name isn't a coincidence. Right. I mean, exactly. I don't think at that point, you know, our kind of strategic brand kind of voice had arrived. And I think we were just like scratching our head one day and thinking, what should we call this? And mm -hmm. so it was, it was almost, you know, um, and quite often I think some of the, some of the brands that have survived a, a degree of time were were named after exactly what's in front of them. So for mm -hmm. us, it just felt like a logical, a logical name. We did spell it with a K, not a C. Yeah. And and the story behind that was we needed to draw a logo, and essentially all we had was an old-fashioned drawing pen and a, and a ruler. So it was a lot easier to draw K than than hand draw C. So um, we, we thought at the time we were being very clever and eventually we could pick up the URL when .com boom came along because nobody would ever use the word attic.com. But it was just an accident or, or more of the, uh, um, you know, the, we, we needed to, you know, create a logo that had some sharp corners. So it became a K. As you said, yeah, I think the K would work a lot better than a C anyway, because you've got, especially if everything's in caps, because you've got the sharp A, then the sharp T, then the sharp K, rather than a curly C, it might sort of... Yeah, not might, have, might have softened it too much. Maybe, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But again, going back to the Americanisms, um, Attic obviously sounds a lot more uh, intriguing than Loft, because obviously right, Loft, exactly. Loft is a... Yeah. Um, a great, a great example of a of the same space in the house, but a completely different word. And yeah. Um, yeah, I think once they've understood where it is, they understand what an attic would be. But it's not, it's not, uh, it's not a word they use. But I think, I think just that uh, punctuation and use of it was something that helped us, especially when we started to see if we could gain some traction in the U.S. as a as a as a design company. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, that makes total sense. So, when you started with with your college mate when you were nineteen, did you did you ever imagine that you you'd be working together for the next twenty five years? Was it twenty five years? Yeah, I mean, approximately twenty five, and and maybe you know, um, the the short answer is no. I think I think Simon and I, Simon Needham, we were both at college together, at Batley Art College, and I, I suppose we fell out of so what appeared to be the fading of, in many ways, in kind of musical terms, punk rock. And the kind of 90, early 80s punk was starting to kind of somewhat fade a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
we 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 entered into art school at that era and and but there was still this intention to be rebellious there was still this desire for young people to sort of almost take on and somehow release their inner aggression uh, and it felt like design school or art school was the was the obvious place to do that and then Simon and I formed a great friendship and and uh, and we went through art school together art college together and then decided maybe we could uh, we we could do something on the other side, um, but we really didn't see ourselves working together for twenty five or more years. It was really because of the, in many ways, the high unemployment. By which time we're in the mid eighties, um, you know, it was a fairly depressing time to be a young adult or a teenager. We were still only nineteen actually, and 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 there weren't there were there were basically not much on offer. There wasn't much on offer and. So it felt like a stopgap. Thought, well, why don't we do this for a year, and then maybe in the job market things would pick up, and we can we can shake hands and go find ourselves a real job. We just kind of never found that real job, to be honest. I think it's a lot of um, a lot of students' dreams to to sort of partner up with their their college buddy and you know enter into the unknown unknown world together and do what they love together and especially at 19 as well that that must have been was there some element of risk at the time do, do you think or was it not really something you were considering i think it's a great time to start um if there are budding entrepreneurs potentially listening out there i think there's 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 no bad time to start so i would i would start by saying that at any mm-hmm. age but but i certainly wouldn't be put off at age 18 19 20 21 those early years of you know, let's face it, you know, maybe that's before, you know, people are, um, you know, um, settling down, um, maybe before a marriage, before it, before serious overheads come along, before children come along, and all the things that as adults possibly prevent people from stepping out to be an entrepreneur at a later date because mm-hmm. they have responsibilities. I think I think even a, even a teenager has responsibilities, but but that but you're somewhere it's like the messy middle of being a child and a, and a and a grown-up. And I think that you could take advantage of that of that kind of messy middle phase uh, should that individual, you know, have a desire to do so. So when you when you did leave, which would have made you uh, when he did leave Attic, sorry, which would have made you, if my maths is correct, around about 44, 45, maybe. Right. Um, I seen an interview you did with Drum where you said, I just felt the time is now to go back to being a creative entrepreneur and see great opportunities over the next five years. And it made me think, you know, fair play. Did you have any idea um, or did you have anything lined up at the time or was the plan to just roll with it and just see what happened? I, I think the latter. I think uh, we'd crossed the 25-year line. And I think, you know, quite often I use a lot of music analogies only because we all understand. And it felt like as a band, we could still continue to do an album or two, but but also as, you know, um, individuals within this band, maybe we would be a good time to go off and do a, something solo. Mm-hmm. Um and that wasn't any disrespect to the other members of that particular attic band, but it just felt like you know we we've been on a great journey. We've 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 experienced so much together. I felt so. I go back to the entrepreneur world, which is an exciting, uh, scrappy um, hand to food, hand to 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 to, to table, or I can. You're really kind of on the cusp of do or die every day, as in terms of survival. Um, what I decided I felt was would be the next opportunity was really trying, you know, kind of develop a muscle in an area of business that I had not gained as a as a as a startup and as a kind of a independent shop. Hmm. So it kind of felt like there was still lots and lots to learn, and I needed to try and seek the avenue, the correct path that would 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 allow me to continue to learn. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Again, it, it, it's one of those things that I, I'm sure a lot of people have in mind or, or want to do to sort of jump into the unknown in a, in a kind of way. And um, I guess there's a lot of, with a lot of risk comes a lot of reward as well. And I think putting yourself in that situation where there is that element of risk almost gives you that 
extra bit of drive to really, you know, find out a little bit more about yourself and how to apply yourself. And when doing that, you you really sort of hone in on on your skills and you're able to achieve a lot more than you would do if you were sort of employment in employment and then you went from one job straight into the next sort of thing. Yeah, and I think the word risk, obviously, it's one of those, there's a handful of, you know, buzzwords today in our commercial world that's definitely there. And I, But I think if I go back to even, you know, I'll, 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 I'll zigzag backwards and forwards. I think even my childhood, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a part of the UK that at one particular time was a, a, a global... Um, you know, kind of had a global presence for innovation in certainly in textiles and the industrial revolution and kind of Yorkshire as a whole, but certainly my hometown played a role in that. Mm. And I could see, I could see the remnants of that. And I could see then obviously things had shifted when I became, you know, a teenager and a young adult. And, but, and then I also grew up, I mentioned also music and, you know, almost this anti-establishment, kind of messages coming from the kind of late 70s to the early 80s and then fashion moved in and consumerism moved in and I saw all these influences as people taking risks at the time whether they were music or innovation or other forms of technology starting to creep in and and there's something about that that was it wasn't my risk but it was something about those periods as an observer as being a young man that I found uh, very exciting. And of course, not every risk will reward, but, but that shouldn't prevent anybody at least trying something new, that all these, all these things that, that were around me were at the time very new. And I think that some things like that stuck with me as I grew older. Yeah, I think I've seen somewhere that Yorkshire was named like a hotspot for creatives or companies or something. There must be a decent um, music scene in Atlanta, right? I know, I think John Mayer, uh, Outkast, who else is from Atlanta? Ludacris, Usher. Is there a, is there, do they make a big deal of it? Like the whole music scene over there? Uh, yeah, there's definitely a strong music, culture, um, art scene in Atlanta. I mean, mm. it's, it's got this kind of undercurrent, this very strong creative undercurrent. Mm. Um you know, the U.S. is so, obviously, we know, it's such a large um, country uh, uh, in its entirety that, that you, you find these pockets of, um, of kind of like uh, inspiration just under that umbrella, mm. whether that is music or it's visual or it's architectural. And whilst they don't have the history of the of of the UK or even uh, other parts of the world in Europe, they, they certainly have this very strong desire to want to either compete today, um, innovate today, and we all know, you know, what what the U.S. can uh, has developed over the last two decades um, in businesses and brands that never existed, and technology and all the things we couldn't do without today. So you're kind of surrounded by this uh, this very optimistic, uh, innovative, uh, daring. Uh, I wouldn't call it community. It's it's a country, of course, but as a, as a, as a as almost the DNA of the people that live here. And I find that really fascinating as well, mm. um, you know, to be be surrounded by that type of an individual. I love it. I absolutely love it. I um, I went to Florida when I was younger and I was only young, but I remember coming back feeling super inspired. I didn't really know what sort of what I wanted to do at the time, but I knew I'd come back feeling inspired. And I, there's a certain energy, I think, I mean, I was in a, a holiday resort in Orlando, but it's it's something that I've, I think I've always wanted to do and, and might do when when I'm a little bit older. Maybe is to try and jump ship and and try something in the states. I've got um, I'm going to New York in April, and um, I'm going with my girlfriend. And I said there's a there's a chance I might not want to come back, so um, be prepared for that. Yeah, I, the US I think has always been kind of you know. The land of opportunity. Let's go back to uh, mm. the forefathers and uh, and 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 the birth of uh, the birth of modern day um, America. And it was always seen as this kind of land that needed to be conquered, and people could live here and and prosper and 
you know, jump on the Mayflower and make your way over. Mm. But it, I think I, I think it's still got that kind of you know. It's still, it, there, there are many challenges as with any uh, as with any country and uh, and social, economic, political. So I think it's it's the same as everywhere else, just larger. Mm. And with that larger comes more challenges, but also potentially more greater opportunity as well. Yeah, I can't wait to check it out and just see what it's all about. But um, yeah, I mean, if we're, if we're going to jump straight into things, I would consider James Somerville to be the face of design at Coke. Is it is it Coke or Coca-Cola? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I would call it a Coke just as you would call a friend uh, a nickname, I yeah. think. You know, it depends on 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 the on the uh, sentence, uh, maybe even the audience. I think it's you know it's it's got its full Sunday name, and I think there's an appropriate time to use the word Coca Cola. Mm-hmm. And then, just as a shorthand, if you're ordering one over a bar, just I would say you know I'd, I'd like a Coke, um, which is you know which which is one of the beauties of a brand. If a brand can not only conquer one name but two names globally mm-hmm. and and all the other assets that a, a a magnificent if you want to call it iconic brand or organization like coke has it has all this kind of this playbook of um of tools and and part of its brand identity that that essentially i felt blessed to be at least kind of leading the charge on those as well, which obviously mm. wasn't my work for the previous 100 years, but or 125 years when I joined. But for the five years I was there, I, I, there was a job to be done. And, and so you kind of, kind of get, get, get the hands on the wheel and, and, and make sure it's going in the right direction. So you, um, you started Coke or Coca-Cola in uh, 2013 and replaced David Butler, who moved to Coca-Cola as Vice President of Innovation. How did it feel knowing that you were going to be instrumental in maintaining that this traditional image people have of Coke? Well, I, I was at first uh, uh, not skeptical, but I, was, I, I pondered whether I should take this job. So I really did want to find, rest in, find a place that would give me an education in an area of business that I had not seen uh, within my years at Attic. So Coke, it ticked all the boxes for that. But at the same time, it's got, as I mentioned, it's got 100, at the point I arrived, it had 125 years of history. Now that history is not just the liquid. It, it was a, it was a, it's been a marketing genius for, uh, for those 125 years. It's done everything. And if you ever visited the archives at, uh, at Coke, you'll see, you'll see in the, in the corridors of the archives, I, I actually thought, what could I bring to an organization that's actually pretty much done everything? So versus joining a tech company um, that might only be 10 years old or, you know, might be 15 or maximum 20 years old. But, you know, they're, they're, that's a relatively short length of time for a global brand today. So when you look at Coca-Cola, you think, well, what could I add? What value could I bring to this? Not only do I want to get something from this in terms of experience, but I want to bring something that ensures that I play a role in the time that I'm here. Yeah, that, that's awesome. You mentioned then like the the corridor of all the old Coke stuff. I've seen a, I've seen a video you were in where you went down to the archives and um, there was all the old Coke memorabilia and the ad adverts and the old bottles and is there something you sort of take for granted when you're there i i did not i i felt that um the solutions for tomorrow are often as i mentioned to you about the name attic it's staring at us right in front of our face so why why overcomplicate things and i think the solutions for many brands with such a deep heritage are often found in their archives. Now, what I don't believe in is just serving up work that is a walk down memory lane. That's a completely different um, um, execution. But what I mean is Coca-Cola were the first brand ever to introduce they were called coupons in uh, in the twenties and thirties. Like once five cents would get you a coke, and they were paper coupons. Now today, then it moved into direct marketing. Then it's then it's into kind of social media, and they they were creating things back then that would look on paper right now very old fashioned. But at the time, 
it was groundbreaking marketing strategically mm. and creatively. So for me, what, what any organization needs is an edge. And Coke's always had that edge. So for me, by going into the archives, I studied historically where did they get their edge from in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s? I'll, I'll keep going because every decade allowed them to create a different edge. And that edge kept them at number one and still mm. number one. They're still, they're still number one soda in the world. So the point for me there is by really studying um, the archives and understanding strategically why they did it, not just creatively how it looks, because if you're only judging it from a creative point of view, it's old-fashioned. But if you really dig a little deeper and double-click down into why they did it, what was the reason, how did they go about it, then you can transport that some of that thinking forward um, into today, stroke tomorrow, and still and still regain or maintain that edge. But it's just it's served up in a completely different way today. So mm. the archives are much more than just a walk down memory lane and and a kind of visual blast from the past to me. I, I know what you mean. Coke definitely has this sort of this image to it that I don't think any other brand has. I was, it, it reminded me. I was speaking to a friend the other day about how brands can take away a core element of their identity just say the logo for example and it's still recognizable and there's not many brands that can pull it off google often play with the logo on their on their landing page sometimes with the the whole google doodle thing mm -hmm. but it reminded me of the uh the share a coke campaign uh that must have launched around about the same time you were there where the logo was was stripped from the bottle and replaced with people's names uh my friends still have glass bottles with their names on in their kitchen uh this seems like a campaign which would be super hard to get approval internally. Was it was it a hard sell? Yes, that was generated by the Australian business unit, as you would call it. So the Australian uh, office of Coca-Cola and the agency uh, there. And I think the, the, the amazing thing about Coca-Cola's, you know, um, in 200 plus markets. So Australia and New Zealand and kind of that whole kind of corner of the world would be classed as maybe, you know, one or two business units. That there's something amazing about a team that, that would uh, have the bravery to try something new. Now, would that have worked? Would that have been launched in the USA or even Europe on what we might call very progressive, large um, markets? Probably not. And the beauty of Australia, and, and maybe it's part of the uh, Australian culture, is to try these new things. And what actually happened is it was a huge success there, and then it was exported to uh, a second business unit, a third, a tenth, a twentieth, and then before you know it, it's all where it's all around the world. But they're almost kind of like a, 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 a business unit like that, are almost kind of. I wouldn't call it guinea pig in an idea, but because mm. it's their idea that then it is everybody sees how successful it is and uh, and they can afford to take the risk then in larger markets like north america or, or or the uk or europe or japan because then it's been proven out in in a market such as australia so there's a, there's often a ping pong effect where or a join the dots however whatever analogy where it might start very small very experimental and then if it's a success it grows if it's not a success they move on mm. and i think coke's been great at things like that being able to maybe trial things in different markets and scale them if they work and that was one of the things that i i really learned to do in the role I had, and obviously before that at uh, Attic and the agency, you never really get the sense of that scale. You don't own that scale. But within Coca-Cola, mm. when they um, you know, press the button and a, and a global campaign goes live in 24 hours in 200 countries, that's, that's real kind of scale um, that, that, that is great to be part of and experience that and see how it works. Yeah, fair play to them. I, to be honest, I didn't know that it had started in Australia, which kind of makes a little bit more sense. I can imagine something, if, if something similar was to happen in the UK, the amount of politics internally to try and get something like that approved would just, yeah, like you say, it just, it probably wouldn't happen. Yeah, there was a follow-up to this, which wasn't uh, our names on 
on on coke but there was i think it's probably 18 months ago australia as a country was going to vote for same-sex marriage so it was a national vote and many brands were coming out in support of of the vote it was uh, maybe it was called the uh, vote yes the vote mm-hmm. yes campaign and coca-cola business unit in australia decided that they wanted to produce a limited edition um can or pack that just said uh, that 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 clearly demonstrated Coca-Cola's support in this in this ballot. So and they they used the same lettering that they'd used for our names and wrote the word uh, love L O V E. So that came to uh, my team and myself in in Atlanta, mm. and we felt that was such an opportunity to even go beyond the names, um, typographically. So for the first time in Coke's history. Um, we sketched out the word love, but in what we would call the Coke script. Mm-hmm. And the Coke script has never been used for another word with, by Coca-Cola. Um, you, see, you see kind of T-shirts and, and kind of black market stuff, but, but certainly by the company, it's never been used. And we, we wrote the word love in the Spencerian script, and then that was published. It was sketched and published and in the consumer's hand in 11 days in a can. So, so the um, the idea of being able to turn an idea around very quickly, but also the bravery and the legal uh, we had legal approval and, and, and business unit approval, global approval. So, as many people approving it, but ultimately it became a very successful and a bold statement uh, in support of the campaign itself. Yeah, that, I'm just trying to think if the um, so the names on the bottles were they written in the in the in the coke. Coke script font, font, or were they, they? They were written in a font called U Y O U. That okay. font. So when you see the word Coke, i.e., Diet Coke, that is almost kind of like a a, a Roman font. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, and so the word Coke is different font to the word Coca Cola. Mm-hmm. So when you've seen your name and my name on bottles and cans, we would have used the Roman font. Um, it's almost kind of the secondary font, but it's not the logo. Uh, it's the Coke logo rather than the Coca-Cola logo. And, so, uh, and, and for the word love, we use the Coca-Cola script. So for the, cause I think it was within the last, I can't, maybe five years ago or something. Didn't Neville Brody create the, a typeface for Coke, the first typeface? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm good friends with Neville. It's probably maybe three years ago, actually. Three years ago. Um, I felt, again, going through the archives, um, Coca's got what, what I'd call a proprietary bottle, without doubt, a proprietary liquid, a proprietary red, a script, a dynamic ribbon, the word Coke, the word Coca-Cola, everything that it's got within its kind of war chest of branding, it owns. It owns outright, and it's taken decades, if not a century, to mm. establish those great iconic visuals. In, in my opinion, what it didn't have from a communication font was an ownable font. Um, it, used a, it used a great font that was introduced to the Coke brand before my time in around about 2005. And it's a classic, you know, sans serif font for, for point of sale, for taglines, for just communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I felt was it was time that Coca-Cola had a, 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 a proprietary font. So part of that exercise was to go into the archives and really study some of the fonts from the previous 120 plus years and really try and establish what would be the character characteristics of an alphabet that we could truly say is Coca-Cola's font. So Neville mm. was, ne- ne- Neville was uh, our partner and uh, and worked on a on a communication font that's called Coca-Cola Unity and uh, and and it's a very simple timeless mm. you know to the untrained designer it will probably look like a Helvetica or you know a Gotham but to us it's got traces of our past in the characteristics of the letter forms so you may see the o from 1950 the q from the 1970s the S from the from the twenties and so on. So mm. when you look across that alphabet, it you know to the untrained eye they won't notice, but we know that the ancestors 
of Coca-Cola are embedded in that in that alphabet. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. I mean, it's like um, it just strengthens the whole identity as well, and the the, the nature of it, and the, the characteristics of it. And Neville Brody himself, he's he's created some awesome work. His um, he did the uh, Channel Four uh, typeface as well. That was great because it sort of lent itself to. I think they might have rebranded shortly after or shortly before where they were using shapes with like uh, this gravity effect to them where they were falling on top of each other and they were, they were all sharp cuts. Um, and, and I think just to kind of touch on Neville and and, and one or two other rock stars of our, of our design community that I was uh, passionate about partnering with, um, See, one of the things that, you know, I go back to the thought of what could I bring to Coca-Cola that it's not already done? And so I think some of my greatest work will never be seen uh, in on a shelf or in a cooler. And I think part of that is process and methodology. So when Simon and I launched Attic, age 19, you know, we're young, we're naive, we're inexperienced, we're all the great things that we all were at 19. And mm -hmm. I think, but we wanted to be, we wanted to be big. We wanted to think big and act big um, because that's what you, that's the ambition you have when you're 19. Now, when I got to Coca-Cola, what could I bring to Coca-Cola? So the first thing I said, I think we should do is we, we need to think small and act small and move like we're a small company because the, the problem with these galactic kind of huge oil tanker organizations is they've been doing things for a hundred years in their set ways mm -hmm. and they know how to do things. But the challenge today is that, that they have to change their ways in order to maintain that leadership position. Now, uh, you know, whether they're a soda or whether they're making motor cars or whether they're making cereal or anything else, they're, they're these staple brands of our, of our childhood and our adulthood that, that, that are now fighting to keep the top spot. So what I felt I could bring as an entrepreneur coming into this huge kind of uh, uh, um, corporate environment was the ability to think more entrepreneurial, is to move quicker and go direct to talent, f seek out the Neville Brodies, seek out the Noma Bars, and work with talent on a very quick and dynamic basis, rather than the old way would be to go to a big agency. Mm -hmm. And the big agency would sit on that for a month and then they'd recommend an illustrator, but they wouldn't tell the client who the illustrator was <laughs> necessarily because there's tons of markup and they don't want to give away their secrets. And before you know it, three months have gone by. I'm like, screw this. We're going straight to the source. And so this ability to be able to move quicker, more like a small shop in a huge environment I think allowed us to slowly start to change some of the processes internally at Coca-Cola. You will never see that on a shelf. You'll see the output of that, hmm. but you won't see that as a kind of a piece of work. And I, and I, I left Coca-Cola thinking that that was potentially some of my best work. Yeah, I totally agree with what you were saying about uh, thinking small and acting like a small company. And I think that's why a lot of smaller companies are starting to make themselves known and, you know, it's these bigger organizations that are starting to feel intimidated. And I think, you know, the, the the smaller companies have got less, well, they haven't got as many internal politics and they're able to do things quicker. And yeah, I think, I think many organizations, uh, so ultimately what I've learned as a designer is, you know, back in the years, I just want to do great you know, cool stuff in Photoshop and uh, maybe do a record sleeve or, you know, wow. And then, a, then eventually it turns into a fly poster. And then eventually I see my work in Times Square. And these are all, this is all kind of great bragging rights. But, but ultimately as a designer, our role is to provide a solution that will help an organization grow. Now, if we're not doing that, we may as well become fine artists or just kind of like do it for the love. But if we're commercial, then that growth is important for the for the brands that we serve. And I think, you know, whilst we want to do our best work, our most kind of visually stunning, you know, it's less about the awards as you get older. It's less about Times Square and it's more about, you know, market share, uh, st stock price in, in Coke's case and, and the ability to be able to design and contribute to moving the needle 
then becomes kind of, kind of you know, the, you know, you, you're really starting to kind of connect big dots then because you are delivering something that is hopefully visually powerful, memorable, iconic, but at the same time, it has a role to play in the, in the life of the business. And if it's not growing the business, then the business will be going backwards. Um, and so you're right, you know, these mammoth kind of longstanding organizations and brands now who have found growth terribly easy for 50 or 100 years. And when I say easy, I mean relatively easy, mm. year on year, double digit um, growth. And, and, and today it's not as easy. So they need to, they, that, that they need to regain their edge and, uh, and design and creativity and working in new ways with new people can actually be one of the things that helps drive that. Mm. Yeah, I, I went to this event in London um, and it was called uh, the Digital Disrupt Disruption Event. And there was brands there from all over the world. There was uh, banks from Singapore, uh, you know, law firms from Sweden, all, all sorts of brands and companies and it was they were basically talking about exactly what you're talking about this whole disruption and some of them were just you know they, they were really struggling with things and i i guess i i can sort of understand why but yeah there was like this this one bank who had decided to scrap everything they were doing and just create an app i'm not sure whether it was a great idea to be honest but just create an app where people can create an account by just uploading a photo and putting in a few details. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic and um, it's a, it's an interesting time we're in as well. Everything's changing so quick. People don't know where it's going. And I think, that, I think that's why it's so great for designers because with every new platform that comes out or with every new piece of technology is the opportunity to create something for it. And I think also one of the trends of, of the last you know five years certainly and, and still here today is this notion of collaboration, and I think you know traditional ag traditional agencies uh, organizations have been very siloed, so there's this kind of immediate rush across the other side of the you know port to starboard side to collaborate, uh, and that's 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 you know great, and I think you know these good designers are willing and and able and promote collaboration. The, the problem with that is, and I read recently, you know, the term was used, it's got a blind spot. And, and the blind spot is that whilst we're all running towards collaboration, it's not really kind of teaching us how to, you know, it's not provoking a defensive behavior. So in other words, I want to stand up for my idea. I want to sell it. And if you don't believe in it, that's not me not collaborating. That's me kind of feeling passionate. I know strategically it's right. I know it'll grow the business. Now, collaboration kind of send, kind of gives the impression that no, no idea is a bad idea. Everybody's got a voice. Everybody can contribute to a, you know, in a kind of typical, you know, design thing, brainstorm sprint. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's all great. But at the same time, I think as, humans and as people who are kind of qualified and get excited by business and, and commerce, we have to also have that tension as well, that tension of being able to, you know, provoke these very interesting discussions about, and, and with that comes disagreement and agreement. So I think, I think it's an interesting time as to how soft and gooey we go over there to collaboration in defense of us being siloed which the world has been in corporate uh, uh, situations. So I, I think I'm kind of monitoring that at the moment, but I would not want anybody to kind of lose those, you know, creatively defensive behaviors at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm seeing more and more of it as well, collaboration. There's so many companies out there at the minute that are, um, they sort of not pride themselves, but they sort of, that's their USP is collaboration. And they'll have people from all different departments coming together to create one product. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But if we're going to go back to Coke and sort of talk about campaigns and stuff like that, one that really stood out to me was the Taste the Feeling campaign. So the, the music running in the background alone was enough to grab people's attention. But the, the footage, the imagery the execution was was beautiful i remember it was the first ad i think it was the first ad which overlaid text over over footage and that just really grabbed grabbed my attention w was it all done in-house 
So I think the birth of Taste of Feeling was driven by a great leader at the time, uh, Marcos de Quinto, who was our CMO, and uh, he pulled together a very uh, small team, and his goal was to create a global campaign. It wasn't just a campaign for the sake of it. What Marcos was trying to do was to recapture some of the magic. He was really kind of engage the consumer in the enjoyment of drinking a Coke, the intrinsic value of an ice cold Coca-Cola. Um, quite often, I think in previous uh, iterations of campaigns, the product had almost fallen into a secondary role, potentially a tertiary role. Oh, there's the Coke in the background. And it was more about, you know, kind of something else. So Marcos had a, uh, a vision to bring back the liquid. And, and so with that was an opportunity um, not to use any of the previous material, but to create some fresh, a fresh perspective on a, on a very, obviously very familiar uh, brand. So, um, you know, in this kind of small team, I, I, you know, my role in that as the design guy was not really to do any of the traditional advertising, but they were looking for someone to take on the print. Now, print being billboards, mm. walking in the supermarket, out of home, all, all the kind of uh, photography. So I was asked to, to lead that. And, uh, and again, I spent hours in the archives. I was looking at some of the hand-painted illustrations from the 50s and the 40s and the 30s, where you had these kind of like, you know, in many ways, these soldiers in the US coming home from the war, these uh, bikini girls, hand-painted mm. kind of, uh, and they were all kind of a little edgy for the time, um, but they also had a great storytelling to them. And I was also kind of obsessed with uh, uh, the work that was done not only for Coke by his broader portfolio of Norman Rockwell. And Norman Rockwell, to me as an artist, as a painter, is, a, is, a, is an insane storyteller. If you look at some of his canvases, the amount of things that you can take from that in one image is untrue. So I thought, well, what if you could, what if you could blend Norman Rockwell and Instagram? So you've got the storytelling of Rockwell mm. from the from the 40s and the 50s, but you, but it's immediate and it's spontaneous and it's as if it just happened on someone's iPhone. And so therefore, you've kind of got the the storytelling of our great years in the past, but but it doesn't feel old fashioned anymore. It feels youthful, it feels relevant, and it feels dynamic. So it's kind of vintage quality. So. The TV then was really a kind of a uh, so the photography was set set a new visual tone of voice in in in, in for, from a kind of a not a film but certainly a visual photographic perspective. Then that translated into film, translated into TV commercials, and 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 that that almost that aesthetic was exported across from the print into more conventional advertising. So again, it said to me, it's not about necessarily the work that we did and we led. It's more about a designer who's, you know, quote unquote, graphic designer, all of a sudden influencing the TV of, of the world's most recognized brand um, through the power of photographer that then translated into the advertising world and numerous um, um, TV commercials were shot around the world in every market with that same look and feel that we created in print. So it was just another great example of, uh, of you know, kind of going back to, again to the early years of music being influenced by music or innovation in Yorkshire, of being kind of that bravery that people showed back then when I was just a kid or a teenager or I wasn't even born. Um, and, and why can we, why can I, why can my team, why could I not tomorrow still have that level of bravery? Because you just don't know what's around the corner. And I think um, all credit to the, to the gentleman, to the leader who gave, us, gave me the opportunity to lead that. And, uh, and then that, that resulted in the look and feel for Taste the Feeling. Yeah, that's awesome. It, it's great how kind of like one thing can lead to another. And I think the kind of the more material that you have for a campaign, the more powerful it becomes. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's another campaign, which obviously people are probably most familiar with. It runs every year. It, yeah, it'd be a shame to have you here and not talk about it. So I'm talking about the, uh, the, the 24 year old holidays are coming home Christmas advert. 
Okay. It's obviously it's it's huge, and personally for me, it's what signifies that Christmas is around the corner. So, I've actually noticed something different in the ad within the last couple of years, uh, maybe within the last two or three. So Santa, when he's driving off towards the towards the end of the advert, he doesn't wink at the kid anymore. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, I I think there are certain things that change ever so slightly. You know, so you take something that has been part of our life, pretty much all our life, mm-hmm. um, like the you know the the the, the, the trucks rolling into the village and it's the snow's falling, it's fresh snow and, and, and everybody's kind of like waiting and that, that signifies the arrival of, 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 of Christmas or the holiday season. And I, I, you can keep playing that for 20 years and so on. I think obviously then after a while, especially with the new global campaign, there's maybe a temptation to just kind of like recreate the same story, mm-hmm. but maybe with a more modern twist and and part of that recreation maybe maybe the kids are a more relevant kid to to today's other kind of teenagers and so on and so forth so it doesn't feel like it's just a kind of 1970s kind of tv commercial or 90, mid 80s actually so so with that and i think it's down to you know the the agency the director you know maybe some of the small nuances have changed um and i don't think there's any real strategic kind of um you know decision behind that it's maybe some things are seen as not relevant and other things are just gonna just to bring a new personality to it otherwise all you're ever doing is remaking the same thing the old movie Mm. yeah so it's just a case of things moving on slightly um and if they lost the wink then that was just a that was just felt to be something they wanted to do at the time that's cool. Has the as working at Coke diluted the feeling that that advert gives you, or did you, did, you know, when you when you see it come on the TV and you're like, there it is, there it is. So it, you know, Christmas is coming, sort of thing. So now that you've experienced working within Coke, when you see that advert, do you, do you still get the same feeling? Uh, probably not. I think I, I'm I'm, you know, when you're when you're in the uh, middle of all that work for five years, it probably doesn't punctuate your memory Mm. in the same way that it would do to someone on the outside. Yeah. Because you're surrounded by it every day. And therefore when it comes on TV, it's just that, you know, your, your brain has adjusted itself to kind of, you know, uh, you know, just not be as kind of surprised. Oh, wow. The Coke, the Coke adverts on TV. Um, but still, I mean, it's a great. It's not my favorite TV commercial of all time from Coke, but it's a good. It's a good solid kind of stake in the ground at Christmas, and people love it. And I think we'll, Coke would continue to either replay it or recreate it. Uh, great stories don't get old. I think it's just sometimes, as we know, we go watch remake of movies. Mm. You know, I mean, the story's still the same, but they bring new. Hollywood stars to it and they put a new twist on it and so on and so forth. So stories can um, pass the test of time, but quite often production values and, uh, and maybe the cast and the crew uh, have changed. So they, they have a tendency to recreate them. Awesome. So I am, um, this is a little bit off topic. I heard a myth ages ago, or someone told me that the Santa's red suit, since we're talking about Santa, Santa's red suit has some sort of connection with, with Coke, with it being red and red. Is that right? Or is that is that a myth? No, that's absolutely right. I oh, think, it is. you know, Santa, yeah, Santa was definitely, you know, St. Nicholas was definitely around way before, you know, Coca-Cola ever kind of created the modern day Santa. But uh, they so Coca-Cola used a, an artist in the 1940s and 50s, and his name was Haddon Sunblom, and so he was a canvas painter, and he was uh, given a brief at the time to kind of you know so so Santa was almost kind of hijacked as a as what you might call today as an influencer <laughs> on, on on Instagram, right? Yeah. Okay, we need her. She's hot right now. She's going to sell our product. And, and at the time, you probably didn't need to ask permission. They just, you know, they, they thought, well, maybe this jolly old character can bring a little bit of happiness uh, at the time of year when no one's really drinking Coke at Christmas. It's too cold. 
Mm-hmm. So maybe we could kind of add something in December um, and and that would roll off into January and bring a brand which is traditionally drunken under hot kind of conditions, certainly certainly in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and so Haddon Sumblon was given the, 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 the brief, the design brief, uh, if you like, to create a character. And he decided he would put uh, Santa in this big, jolly old red suit. Uh, and uh, he pitched that to Coke, and Coke accepted it. And then that was the first time we ever saw Santa in red. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. So, yeah. so what was he wearing before that? Well, I think if you look at the history of Santa Claus and St. Nicholas, and, you know, I think he probably had a green suit on, actually. Yeah, uh, green was the color that came to my mind as well. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he took, again, another classic talk about innovation another a great story within the history of coca-cola's timeline of taking something that's already there and making it their own and mm. uh, and so that's the sort of thing that you realize in the archives all these um, amazing very bold very brave stories at the time that could have flopped but you know let's call it 70 uh, 80 90 years later it's still it's still working yeah that's awesome again going slightly off topic but I once read in the um, the IDSA that, again, this has nothing to do with Santa. I've once read in the IDSA that in collaboration with the University of Huddersfield and Regional Development Agency, you conceived the, fir- the world's first creative industry-based master's degree course. Is, how, how, did that, how did that come about? Well, I think at the time we were really, uh, we were very close to the University of Huddersfield for uh, decades and still, and st- mm-hmm. I still am. But at the time, we were also, I think one of the things we found in Huddersfield, being very transparent, was um, it, it's, it, you know, it's very difficult to retain talent. Young designers eventually, after a period of time, want to hit the bright lights and they want to shoot down to London or maybe they go abroad or maybe the bright lights to them is working in Leeds. And that's all good. And so, Huddersfield is such a, you know, it's got this, as I mentioned before, it's got this heritage of innovation, but at the same time, you know, and it, it, you know, just attracting creative talent to Huddersfield was something that we were struggling with a little bit. And so we formed a partnership with the university and at the same time as kind of creating this, uh, you know, it was a prototype for us. It was something that we would see if it could potentially work. And we brought students in, international students in, as well as regional and local students. And they were on a kind of a, a 12-month course. And we were part of delivering that course uh, in partnership with the University of Huddersfield. And our mm-hmm. goal, selfishly, was to kind of like, you know, see if any real talent came from that that we could employ. So there was obviously kind of a uh, you know kind of a um, a reason for doing it to to provide a new course in partnership with the university but as a commercial entity we were also looking to hire talent mm. and uh, and there were some amazing designers that that came through that and to a degree it worked but you know excuse the pun but it was <laughs> it was definitely you know i think i think today um it would still be viable to do that. I think. I think the the partnerships between um, academia and business probably have never been stronger, and and need to continue. I think it's healthy for students. It's healthy for the universities, and more than anything, it's healthy for the organisations to have those connections as well. So was it ran in a sort of traditional school method where it was three years or so, or was it was it longer or? No, it wasn't. It wasn't longer than that. It was, it it was two years um, from memory. But the university really ran the syllabus. So, you know, the university would never take on a you know fly in the night MA kind of bachelor's course from a small design shop in their local town. That they, they need it needed to be fully accredited, approved designed as a as because you're talking about pe- people's uh you know kind of uh training and lives and people are coming in from different countries so mm-hmm. the university really carried and did most of the heavy lifting um you know they were essential partners in delivering which was a superb course um you know and we were really just the kind of commercial entity 
that in many ways we're the sponsors of it and, we, and our name was kind of attached to it, but really the delivery of that was uh, pretty much 90, 98% the university. Wow, that's cool. Uh, I, it just reminded me of, uh, I was speaking to, I'm not sure whether you've heard of him, his name's Chris Doe. He's a, he's a basically a creative influencer. He he's based in California. He's got a huge social following, and he's got an online educational platform. And we were talking about traditional university and this new method of learning, this online educational platform. And we were talking about similar to what we were talking about earlier about how it's hard for the industry to keep up, or any industry to keep up, whether that be design or whatever or you know education i guess education is no different either so when we think about uh like the structure the internal structure of universities it's that something that you think is also under pressure from from how quick things are evolving i think it's yes i think everybody's under a degree of pressure because of the speed of change. At the same time, it's probably never been a better time for universities or, or, or even schools, um, you know, kind of like to make, uh, embed, strengthen, grow, whatever word you'd like to use, the connections with the outside. Uh, mm. Because there's never been a greater time for large organizations to adopt, to change, to learn new habits. And of course, what the universities are uh, deliver are youthful, creative, intelligent, hungry, talented people. So that's exactly what a Coca-Cola of the future is looking to hire and another thousand organizations like that. And that's exactly what universities and academia delivers. So whilst that change is, can be a threat, um, for me, it, 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 it's a perfect opportunity. And I know many universities are you know, fully wired into into the kind of commercial world as well. So I think actually it bridges a gap, which is maybe ten or twenty five years ago, that gap was that there was no there was very few bridges across the, that mm. kind of academic world and that commercial world. Um, I think now they're probably more hand in glove, working together uh, for the benefit of everybody. Yeah, there's a there's a small part of me that thinks it would be a shame if everything was to go online. Uh, I think it's easier to be inspired when you're surrounded by like-minded people in that sort of creative environment. I think one of the, you know, the buzzword of the last probably five years, and if I worked at IDEO, I'd say 10 or 15 years is design thinking. I think it's certainly caught fire in, in the real world, in the outside world, beyond, beyond um, designers who intuitively have a design thinking process, but now it's become a methodology that the uh, C-suite of uh, large corporations want to understand how that works. Now, for me, mm. I think that's really just, you know, it's going back to basics of almost teaching us to be to a degree age six or seven again. And, and I think, you know, once we can start to, um, I think many schools now are starting to bring in the kind of, uh, and, and understand the power of design thinking to educate young students, and by that I mean also at school, not just education, to um, to implement that into their curriculum. So when the the next generation leaves school, when they are kind of going to university or going to college or maybe just going to to find themselves a job, which is all good, I think maybe just that idea of uh, having adopted a design thinking uh, process at secondary, middle school, high school. I think would actually start to kind of slowly. I mean, obviously, we're, we're designers, so I think that's a great thing. I'm sure if I was in another field, I'd be I'd be encouraging schools to to look at other areas as well um, to prepare them for for the the real world. But I do think, you know, design thinking cuts across a lot of um, sectors and also within an organization, a lot of departments, it's not, for, mm. not just for the design team. So I think that would be something I'd like to see kind of introduced into a more broader, younger education kind of, uh, landscape. I think that then future generation of kids could really benefit from holding onto that because they really get, mm. it, they really get it kind of, you know, pushed out of them 
as I did, unless you then mm. kind of, um, as most uh, children become adults, then that ability to think like a child um, evaporates because you turn into an adult and there's processes then. I think design thinking can kind of hold on to that talent that we all had as young kids. Mm. Yeah, I, so true. I was speaking to uh, someone the other day about when I was sort of transitioning from uh, secondary school into college and at the time when I was in school, I did I didn't really have any sort of concerns about what I wanted to do when I left school. I know my friends did. They were sort of, you know, had their head down and they wanted to go to university and they knew what they were going to do. But at the time, I, I decided the three subjects I chose were art, music and graphic design. And I didn't think there would be a career in, in any of the three. The only reason why I took them was just because I enjoyed doing all three. And when I left school, there was no real indication as to how those three subjects can help me find employment. It was kind of like, you know, the things that are available to you are apprenticeships and university. They, they, they seem to be the only sort of two options that I had. There was no real uh, instructional guidance into how going to college can then you know, studying art and design can then lead to graphic design, which can then lead to having a full-time job in graphic design to do these different things. It was just sort of like, you know, you can either go to uni to study geography or maths or science, or you went to college to study plumbing. And that's exactly what I did. I went to college for two years, did plumbing, seen a job advert for a, a sign maker graphic designer. And I was like, what the hell? So th there is money to be made in this. Probably naive on my part, not doing research back then, but there probably wasn't much research available. Maybe they should be a little bit more informative about what options are available to, to students before they leave, maybe. I mean, it's quite hard, isn't it? You know, you're 16 years old and you're being told to choose three subjects which are going to define the rest of define the rest of their lives yeah and i think peeling all that away that's why i'm such a fan of design thinking i'm sure stanford university and ideo they're really the masters at this and leading the charge but really it's about developing you know creative confidence um so whilst there are, there's the process of design thinking who doesn't want a child to leave school who doesn't have that creative confidence, even if they want to be a plumber, that's gone. Mm. That's okay. Uh, mm -hmm. And they want to work in a bank or they want to be an accountant or a doctor. But it really, at the basis of that is empathy, is understanding, is really, you know, having a point of view, moving to ideation, making it, making it real, prototyping it. And that, 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 those skill sets can be applied to any trade, in my opinion. So mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a maker generation of technology um, designers. It's really skills that we all use every day in the field that we chose. And I yeah. think what, that's what design thinking teaches uh, people beyond kind of maybe the end product, which could be a highly creative product. But at the same time, it's, as I say, it's more about developing this creative confidence that allows them to take that with them and I'd rather leave with that certificate than, mm. than a B in geography. Yeah, I could <clears throat> I could talk about education all day. It really is an interesting subject. Um, but, oh my God, I've just realized we've been chatting for an hour and 27 minutes. Wow. Uh, I, I would love to carry on the subject. Uh, I think this subject in itself could have its own episode. If, if you're interested in maybe doing another one, Definitely, yeah. Yeah, more on that, hopefully, next time. Well, thanks so much, James. I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, have a great week, and I'll speak to you soon. We'll keep in touch. You too, you too. Thanks a lot, and uh, yeah, and uh, have a good evening. I appreciate you connecting. Great, I, I appreciate it too. Thank you so much, James. Cheers, thank you. Bye-bye.